0: This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors, such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors, or authors, are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organisation, company, individual, or anyone, or anything. Hey everyone, I know it's been a while. Between starting a new job and moving house, it's been a bit crazy, but I'm glad to be back with you today. In light of all of this, I'm only going to publish episodes once every two weeks until things have calmed down a bit. Being a bit of a one-woman show, researching, recording and editing everything myself, it takes a while to get proper content out. I really hope you guys understand. The next group we are looking into was a request from one of our listeners, Nal, on Facebook. I appreciate all of you and thank you. On the website 12tribes.org, it states, The Twelve Tribes is a confederation of 12 worldwide self-governing tribes, made up of self-governing communities. We are disciples of the Son of God, whose name in Hebrew is Yeshua. We follow the pattern of the early church, written in Acts 2 verses 44 and 4 verses 32, sharing all things in common. We believe everything that is written in the Old and New Covenant of the Bible. Acts 2 verse 44 states, All believers continued together in close fellowship and shared their belongings with one another. Acts 4 verse 32 states, The group of believers was one in mind and heart. None of them said that any of their belongings were their own, but they all shared with one another everything they had. This is Decoding Cult's, and I am your host Paul Z. you are listening to The Twelve Tribes, Part 1. In this episode, we are going to look into the life of the leader and how the group came to be. Albert Eugene Spriggs Jr., nicknamed Jean, was born on 18 May 1937, to Albert and Mabel Spriggs, in East Ridge, Tennessee. I found a few reports that the Spriggs were a very religious family and attended church up to three times a week. Gene would later say that his father was very strict and he had received corporal punishment not only at home, but at school as well. As I explained in episode 19 Kwasi Sabantu part 2, we did have this kind of punishment in schools here in South Africa, but it was banned by 1996. I was curious to see what the current laws are in Tennessee regarding corporal punishment in schools and found something very interesting. In this state, corporal punishment in school is not outlawed. As a matter of fact, I found a research paper called Corporal Punishment in Tennessee written by Lauren Spires, a legislative research analyst, which was published in March 2018. It says in part, Adopted in 1979, the School Discipline Act, TCA 49-6-4101, allows corporal punishment to be used in Tennessee schools and directs local boards of education to adopt policies governing its use within their districts. State law does not address the use of corporal punishment for students with disabilities, so it seems it is still happening. Many said that Gene had always had a deep love and respect for his father. Gene grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee and attended Central High School. He was a very talented American football player and, as a typical teenager of the time, attended parties and drank and smoked. According to 12tribes.org, his father never approved of this and this caused some internal conflict with Gene. His love for his father versus his wanting to enjoy life like a typical teenager. Gene won a football scholarship to the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga where he decided to study psychology. In 1957, at the age of 19, he married his first wife. This may seem very young, but it was not uncommon at the time. I could not find any further information on his wife other than the fact that the marriage was very short-lived and they ended up getting divorced in 1960. It was said that Gene was very charismatic, and that he had a presence about him. He also kept in shape, and looked young for his age. So, it may not come as a surprise that he remarried in 1962. And again, I could not find any more information on this wife either. The two, however, did have one child together, a son called Tyron Eugene Spriggs. It was also in 1962 when Gene was drafted to the US military. As he had obtained a degree in psychology, Dean was tasked to perform the psychological testing on new recruits. All new recruits into any branches of the military at the time had to take the Armed Forces Qualification Test, or AFQT for short. This test was created in the 1950s by the American Department of Defense, to determine a person's eligibility for acceptance into the U.S. military service by assessing his or her mental ability qualification. Originally consisting of a hundred multiple choice items measuring vocabulary, arithmetic, spatial relations, and mechanical ability, it was used until 1976. Jean left the army in 1963 and decided on a career as a high school teacher and guidance counsellor. Now, for us non-US citizens that did not have this in school, on BetterHelp.com, it states, Today, guidance counsellors offer a range of services and are a crucial part of the education system. A guidance counsellor basically helps students in preparing for life. The counselling system is in place to help students achieve their future career and their social interactions. Counsellors are available from kindergarten through twelfth grade and begin by helping students grow their own self-understanding as well as acceptance for themselves. School guidance counsellors assess students individually, catering to the specific needs of each youth. Back in the 1960s, when Jean served as one, Their main focus was on assisting school students with their academic and career achievement. It is my opinion that this may have been a period during which he had discovered how to mould and influence young minds. This will become clearer later in the story. By 1966, Jean had changed careers again and was working at Dixie Yarns, which happened to be the company where his father had worked for all of his career. Jean fulfilled the role of Personnel Manager, which we refer to these days as Human Resource Managers. The company was opening new plants and Jean was in charge of hiring all of the staff needed to run these new divisions. Jean was said to be living in the fast lane at this point, driving flashy cars and spending loads of money. It was in that same year of 1966 when his father's health took a turn. It is said that on his deathbed, Albert pleaded with Jean to give his life to God. This conversation and his father's eventual passing apparently caused Jean a lot of internal conflict and by 1968 he had divorced his wife and had taken up a job as a tour director for a travel company. By 1969, Jean had met and married another young woman. Again, there is no information on this person either and... For those of you who are keeping tabs, this is indeed wife number three. His marriage was, by some accounts, not a happy one from the start. He also reportedly still felt uneasy in his new job, as he had not really changed his lifestyle, and the words that his father had spoken to him on his deathbed still haunted him. Jean decided that he needed a change again. His plan was to visit relatives in California, And possibly pursue a new line of work. On his trip east, he decided to visit a friend of his in Alabama. This friend happened to own a carnival and offered Jean a job running one of his concessions. For those of us who do not frequent carnivals, a concession is basically like a snack bar. According to the Twelve Tribes website, it was here, while working at the carnival, that Jean heard God say to him deep within his soul, is this why I created you? Apparently, this revelation came to him as he was observing his perceived notion of human degradation including cheating and immorality. The question caused Jean to immediately leave the carnival and seriously rethink his life. His new revelation also created further strain on an unhappy marriage and the couple divorced by 1971. In order for us to understand how Gene would ultimately be able to create the group that he did, we'll need to look at what was happening during this time. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, a counterculture was emerging in the United States known as the Jesus Movement. As I discussed with you guys during my coverage of Heaven's Gate, by this time the hippie era was coming to an end And many of these young people were seeking deeper meaning in life, or they turned back to their faiths, including Christianity. But instead of returning to church in the traditional sense, some of these individuals went in search of a more fulfilling spiritual experience. People who followed this movement wanted a more personal experience of God, and did not necessarily want to be preached at from a pulpit. This led to a few evangelical ministries and street preachers. Many Christian sects emerged from this culture, like the children of God. I'll cover this group in a later episode. One of the most apparent characteristics of this movement was their intense evangelistic fever and stress of experience and emotion over doctrine. Just a side note, contemporary Christian music sprung from this movement. By the time Jean got to California, the Jesus movement was in full swing. In nineteen seventy-one, he joined a church in Glendale, California. He said that while walking along the beach one day, he fully committed his life to God, and thereafter spent his time preaching between Santa Barbara in California and Jackson Hole in Wyoming, spreading the word of God. It is in Jackson Hole where Jean met Marcia Ann Duval. It's usually at this point where I delve into the earlier years of the next leader, in this case Marsha, but I could not find any real information on her background in early years. I did however find a small bit of information on the 12tribes.org website, so I'll give it to you, but I think we should maybe take the information with a pinch of salt. By this time, we know that sometimes some leaders of these high-control groups tend to embellish their background stories slightly. Now, I'm not saying that they did in this case, but I think we should just approach it with some healthy skepticism. You know, in case. Right. According to the Twelve Tribes website, Marcia didn't believe it when Christian stated that they had a personal relationship with God. Her reasoning behind this was that their lives were filled with the same ambitions, pleasures, and even mundane routines as everyone else's. This observation, along with what she was learning in her philosophy courses in college, led her to believe that there was no God. Marsha soon dropped out of college, as she allegedly found only emptiness there. She moved to a small town where she found a like-minded community of people that wanted to be real and really live. It is in this town where Jean and Marsha met. Marsha admired Jean's passion, but did not like that he was so into the Bible. She was, however, fascinated by the way he spoke of his love for Jesus. Jean would speak to Marsha about the Bible, to which she would offer him challenging questions. It is said that he could not always answer each of her questions, but he never wavered in his faith. According to the website, this impressed Marsha. Eventually, by their own account, Jean would convert marsha to Christianity. And no surprises here, the two got married in 1972. Yes, she was now wife number four. The couple would move back to Jean's hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee. According to the website, Jean felt the need to go back because he had some unresolved things that he needed to sort out and debts that he needed to repay. Marsha, on the other hand, didn't want to go back because she was, quote, in the pseudo-liberal prejudices of her Californian upbringing. Now, according to UrbanDictionary.com, a pseudo-liberal is a fringe group of people that may claim to support liberal ideologies of equality, individual rights and freedom, but in reality do not, or that may be incorrectly classified as liberals by others. I assume what he was saying is that she didn't want to move to Chattanooga because of her preconceived prejudices around a town in the South. It's important to note that Tennessee is part of the Bible Belt in the USA. According to BusinessInsider.com, the Bible Belt is an area of the US. The Bible Belt is an area in the US where evangelical Protestantism, plays an especially strong role in society and politics. People in the Bible Belt tend to be socially conservative and have higher church attendance rates than people in other parts of the country. We also need to remember that the southern states fought against the abolishment of slavery and were also some of the first states to enforce segregation. This is similar to apartheid here in South Africa. On History.com it says The first step towards official segregation came in the form of Black Codes. These were laws passed throughout the South, starting around 1865. They dictated most aspects of black people's lives, including where they could work and live. The Codes also ensured black people's availability for cheap labour after slavery was abolished. Segregation soon became official policy enforced by a series of southern laws. The so-called Jim Crow laws, named after a derogatory term for blacks, legislators segregated everything from schools to residential areas to public parks to theatres to pools to cemeteries, asylums, jails and residential homes. There were separate waiting rooms for white people and black people in professional offices and, in 1915, Oklahoma became the first state to even segregate public phone booths. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was signed, outlawing discrimination. I know this was a bit long-winded, but it'll become more important later in the story. Marsha ended up going to Chattanooga with Jean, as, according to the website, quote, their lives no longer belonged to them, they were living for their saviour now, so off they went to Jean's hometown, end quote. My opinion is that she ended up going because she submitted to the authority of her husband. My reason for this will become clear later in the story. I just want to add here that I think Marsha was basically Jean's first follower. It's my opinion that he used all of his previous experiences in personnel management, being a guidance counsellor and his degree in psychology to help convince her. I also think that in converting Marsha he found the confidence to further his following. The couple got jobs in town and soon paid off most of their debts. They attended services at various denominations of churches and eventually joined the First Presbyterian Church and opened a coffee house in their home on Vine Street called The Light Brigade. As they were conveniently located near the Chattanooga University, There was a steady stream of students that frequented the coffee shop. Jean used this opportunity to preach to the young men and women who came to their establishment. They also started speaking to some wayward teens, who would eventually end up staying there. If you're asking yourself why these young people would be influenced by such a man, and even move in with him, I'd like to remind you of one of the reasons why people do just that. Young people who have moved from their home to a new area often seek out a sense of community among like-minded people and those who were from the Christian faith may just find that community in this particular group. I also think that all of his previous experience with youth during his guidance counselling years, along with his background in psychology, helped him influence these young minds. They were also youth that had nowhere else to go and may have been grateful for a meal and a roof over their heads. Jean started having small study groups and they launched a small underground paper which they called the Light Brigade Free Paper and they distributed this to gain more members. By 1973, Jean's following began to grow to a point where it was becoming hard to financially sustain all of the people staying at their home. So in May of that year, they opened the first Yellow Deli. This was a restaurant-slash-coffee shop where followers who worked at the store did so in exchange for room and board at the Spriggs' home. On the yellowdeli.com website, under the Chattanooga branch's history, it states, The early 70s would not have been such a special time in the Chattanooga area without the Yellow Deli. Remember those luscious fruit salads? Great sandwiches? Fresh salads? And homemade dessert? Something about its warm, rustic atmosphere drew people like a magnet. And who can forget the heartfelt invitation at the bottom of the hand-drawn yellow daily menu? We serve the fruit of the Spirit. Why not ask? Somehow, God's love had been communicated to our hearts in such a way that all we wanted to do was pass on the love, joy and peace spoken of in the New Testament. Our Saviour meant everything to us. So working together to serve the best food in the best atmosphere, with all of our hearts, seemed a normal response. The fruit of the spirit was produced naturally from the good tree of happy believers working together. Just a side note, they actually stole the name from a restaurant in Jackson Hole, where, you know, Jean had preached a few years before. Although Jean was very much influenced by the Jesus movement, there were still some nods to the hippie movement. For example, the big yellow flower that was used in the logo of Yellow Deli and the bus they purchased to transport the followers was decorated with flowers. In 1974, 26-year-old Charles Eddie Wiseman crossed paths with the group. Eddie, as he was more commonly known, had started taking drugs when he was in college. He said that he was lost with no purpose in life, until he met Jean. He further stated that he immediately stopped taking drugs and followed Jean. Eddie would later become Jean's second-in-command and a prominent leader within the group. At this time, two other young men named James Howell and David Jones joined the group. They would later become the spokespersons for the group. By this time, they were still pretty benign. Although Jean had some control over his small group of followers, it would start to lean more towards high control fairly soon. On Sundays, the group would all jump in the bus and attend the first Presbyterian church service. However, when the group showed up for church on 12 January 1975, only to find that it was closed, Jean was not amused. You see, the local pastor had decided to forgo that Sunday sermon so that his congregation could watch the Super Bowl. For those unfamiliar with this, the Super Bowl is the final game of American football, similar to the Rugby Curry Cup final here in South Africa, but with a lot more fan fee. A typical football game lasts about an hour, but with breaks between quarters and timeouts, it can go on for a few hours. During the Super Bowl, they usually have big musical artists who perform a 20-30 to 30 minute set. Advertising during this time is also huge, and many big brands spend millions of dollars on Super Bowl-specific ads. The fact that the pastor had forgone ministering to his congregation in favour of them staying home to enjoy the game did not sit well with Jean at all he was deeply disturbed by the fact that a pastor would skip a Sunday service and the word of God for something as trivial as sport. He stated that they would stop going to church and start being the church. From this point forward, he started holding his own Sunday services at a local park by the name of Warner Park and he called his congregation the Vine Christian Community Church. He also referred to his services as critical mass. Jean started referring to mainstream churches as the harlot mentioned in Revelations. In Revelation 17 verses 1 to 2 it states, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, and I will show you how the famous prostitute is to be punished, and that great city that is built near many rivers. The kings of the earth practiced sexual immorality with her, and the people of the world became drunk from drinking the wine of her immorality. He basically claimed that the churches were pandering to sin and were no longer sharing the true message of God. He further stated that he was to start and lead the community similar to the first church in the book of Acts. Acts 4 verse 32 to 36 states, the group of believers was of one mind and heart. None of them said that any of their belongings were their own, but they all shared with one another everything they had. With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God poured rich blessings onto them all. There was no one in the group who was in need. Those who owned fields or houses would sell them, bring the money received from the cell, and hand it over to the apostles and the money was distributed to each one according to his need. And so, it was that Joseph, a Levite born in Cyprus, whom the Apostles called Barnabas, which means one who encourages, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and handed it over to the Apostles. This would become one of the cornerstone teachings. Jean must have realised now that he had some control over his followers, as he slowly got them to give up more and more to follow him. He soon realized that many would give up almost anything to follow him. He would thus eventually convince his followers to sell off all of their assets and hand over all of their money to him, then move in with him. I can kind of understand why they would give up their money, especially if he used the verse in Acts. You know the one I read a minute ago? As we know by now, Those individuals who become cult leaders often do it to gain money, power or sex. In the case of Jean, thus far I think it was mostly money and power. They still actively recruited through the Yellow Deli restaurant and their newsletter, and newer members were not immediately exposed to the stricter teachings. As a matter of fact, they would love bomb their newer members and visitors. According to Oxford.com, love bombing is the action or practice of lavishing someone with attention or affection, especially in order to influence or manipulate them. This is a tactic that is often used in high control groups to make a new member feel loved and accepted to the point where they would want to join the group. Just as a side note, this is also a tactic used by the aggressor in the initial phases of an abusive relationship. In a 1979 news article, which I found on question12tribes.com, Melinda Horton explained, while she was studying music in 1975, she had fallen in with the wrong crowd and wanted to go back to her Christian roots. She happened across the Vine community and attended one of their meetings. Melinda's mother noted how when she had returned from her first meeting, she was shining, just bubbling over. Mrs. Horton further stated, she said they were the happiest young people she had ever seen in her life, that they loved each other and the Lord. Melinda loved the new community and felt very welcome and loved. In an A&E special called Cults and Extreme Beliefs, Roger Arnold stated, The appeal of the 12 tribes was they offered the opportunity to live 24-7, 365 in Christian community, and yet, at the same time, there was a bit of darkness that was underneath. Jean would preach more zealously each Sunday and eventually started baptizing people in the nearby Chickamauga Lake. He also started appointing elders in the group. Now, what we need to keep in mind here is that Jean was not an ordained minister or even a trained pastor. As a matter of fact, he had no formal or informal training in ministry. And yet people flocked to his sermons. In 1976, they expanded their business and opened a restaurant called Areopagus. This was named after the prominent rock outcropping located northwest of the Acropolis in Athens, Greece. It was suggested that this was the place where the Apostle Paul gave his first service. The restaurant was promoted as a place where Christians could come together and offer each other support. It was also used as an additional recruiting place. They also started buying more property as the number of followers were increasing. There were up to 40 people living in one house, which did not impress their neighbours. When a local newspaper approached Eddie about this, he explained it away by telling them that people would rather live among their fellow believers than out in Satan's world. Over the next few years, Yellow Deli and some of its affiliate brands expanded through the U.S. Each of the restaurants would be built entirely by followers. They never used any outside contractors for the build. Ted Patrick, who was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1930, is also known as the father of deprogramming and would be the founder of the Cult Awareness Network. Some of the parents, who became concerned about their children within the group, Turned to Ted to get their children out. Now, there are a couple of things that we need to keep in mind here. Firstly, some of these followers were over the age of 18, meaning that by law, they were adult and were free to live where they wanted and follow who they wanted. This meant that Ted needed to basically kidnap these followers in order to deprogram them. Secondly, deprogramming would oftentimes backfire as this method would basically reinforce the group's teachings that the outside world was bad and against them. Deprogramming has since been banned, as it is very traumatic for the person being deprogrammed, but it was very popular right into the 1990s. From around 1976, this group was on Ted Patrick's radar, and he made numerous attempts to get members out. Most of these were because their parents requested it. Now, let's overlay Dr. Hassan's bike model on what we know thus far. Under behavioral control, we can see that they control where and with whom the follower interacts, and they discourage individualism and encourage groupthink. Under information control, we can see where he minimizes or discourages access to non-cult sources of information. Under thought control, they require members to internalize the group's doctrine as truth. A adopting the group's map of reality as reality, B, instill black and white thinking, C, decide between good versus evil, D, organize people into us versus them, insiders versus outsiders. They also create a us versus them mentality and make their followers fear the outside world. It was also in the 1970s where Jean got 501D status from the IRS. The IRS, or Internal Revenue Service, is the government body in the US that collects taxes, similar to the South African Revenue Service, or SARs, that we have here. According to law.cornell.edu, 501d 1. Religious and Apostolic Associations or Corporations A. Religious or Apostolic Associations or Corporations are described in section 501d, and are exempt from taxation under section 501a, if they have a common treasury or community treasury. Even though they engage in business for common benefit of the members, provided each of the members includes, at the time of filling his return, in his gross income, his entire pro rata share, whether distributed or not, of the net income of the association or corporation for the taxable year of the association or corporation, ending with or during his taxable year. Any amount so included in the gross income of a member shall be treated as a dividend received. In other words, they gained tax exempt status, so they didn't need to pay tax on any of their income. The group kept growing, and by this time, they were over a 150 strong. Jean started referring to himself as an apostle, which is not surprising given that leaders of these types of groups often give themselves a title, which would elevate them above their followers. A few of the members started leaving as their lives became unbearable under Jean's rule. Some of those who left spoke out and told the Chattanooga Times of their working hours, they were working between 80 and 90 hours a week with hardly any pay and an extreme lack of sleep. They were told that this was to prove that they would give up anything and everything for Jesus Christ. Until very recently, the followers were only paid $10 a week. That's about 153 rand. This was for food and all of their essentials. To put it in perspective, The South African minimum wage is 21.69 per hour at the moment and most people here work a 40 hour week. Given that these followers work between 80 and 90 hours a week, let's say 80 hours for this calculation. If they were here in South Africa, they'd have to earn 1,735.20 per week by law, which is close to $113 per week. The current minimum wage in Tennessee is $7.25 per hour. So for followers working 80 hours per week, that would be $580 per week or 8906 Rand and 55 cents. It blows my mind that they think that it is okay to pay so little money, especially since it is alleged that this group brings in around $26 million per year. But this is just my opinion. In our next episode, We will continue to look at the growth of the group and also look a bit more into their practices. For those of you who are true crime fans and would like to listen to more locally South African content, I would like to introduce you all to a podcast called It Happened Here. But here's Kate to tell you more about her awesome podcast. Lee was abducted from campus, Notolo was walking home. Kevin had gone out to a meeting, Sheldon was playing in the garden, and Uya Nene was in line at the post office. It Happened Here is a new true crime podcast that approaches everyone's favourite podcast genre from a journalistic and ethical perspective. One that tells victims' stories and doesn't make heroes out of the monsters. It's an independent show, researched and presented by me, Kate Thompson-Davy, a true crime nerd just like you, If you like your stories intersectional, your facts accurate, and your sarcasm dry, search for It Happened Here on your preferred podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. Also, please invite your family and friends to listen too. If you are listening on YouTube, please subscribe and like the video. You can also leave comments if you want to. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult, like this one, that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA and Endeavor AV and tell them that I sent you. This week, I would like to say asante to my listeners in Kenya. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist, Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.